Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 25 this morning. You can find it on page 916 in the Pew Bibles there. If you're just joining with us, maybe you haven't been here before or you haven't been in a while, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Acts is all about what it means to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we participate in the mission of Christ to the world. You see, the Word of God is not just for us so that we can kind of hide it in our hearts and be happy and glad, but that we, as we receive this Word, as we treasure it in our hearts, it compels us outward to share our joy in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of participating in a mission trip where maybe you've gone overseas or at least some distant place outside of your comfort zone, outside of the norm, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Now, I'm, I'm not counting those trips where you, know, you go and, and you pay buildings for Jesus, but I, I do actually mean where you're intentionally sharing the gospel. Or, or maybe you haven't gone overseas, maybe you've stayed closer to home, and you have intentionally invested in neighbors or coworkers or or family, or friends, and you have repeatedly and intentionally and purposefully shared the gospel with them. But few things in life can compare to the joy that we experience when we see it click. When we see someone receive the gospel and delight in the glory of Christ. Few things can compare to it in life. It is enlivening. It is joyful. It fills our hearts and, and, and we celebrate. I mean, I, as I try to think about it this week, I mean, there's the things in my life that I can compare to what it's like to actually see someone saved, that God does this work in their lives, and, and I was a part of that. Uh, I can think of scoring a winning basket in a playoff game in basketball. I, I can think of that time where I stood before my former youth pastor, Ed Ingram, and Phyllis said to me, I do. I can think of the first time I held Laden in my arms. Those kinds of things. Few experiences in life can compare to the joy that we have when we see someone come to faith in Christ. And it is enlivening. It rejoices the heart. Few things can gladden our souls more than when we're there, when that person receives the Holy Spirit and they are changed so that they now rejoice and delight in Christ. We got a little taste of it last week when we got to listen to Catherine's baptism testimony. It was truly a delight. But I don't know if you saw this from your vantage point. See, I, I, have, a, I have a nice perspective from which to see things. But you may not have saw this, but I did. But one of the things that rejoiced me just about as much, maybe even more, was the fact that I looked out and I saw Kendall over here just leaning on the pew, beaming like a kid at Christmas time. And I, it, it was adorable. And, and I mean, I, I doubt that I'll ever call Kendall adorable again, but in this case it was. And, and I don't know, uh, I don't know which really at that moment pleased my heart more, just being able to, to rejoice in hearing Catherine's testimony and be there and to, to be able to immerse her in the water or just being able to see the joy on Kendall's face as he watched this transpire. It was meant to gladden our hearts. It was meant to cause us rejoy to rejoice and to be glad. There's, there's something that is so heart-gladdening, so soul-exulting for both the hearer and the sharer when someone comes to faith in Christ. But sometimes in those missional settings, whether that be in your neighborhood or that be across the globe, the Word of God is not sown on the good soil. but maybe along the path or among rocks or thorns. The gospel appears to be received, but immediately it's snatched away or it's distorted by the lies of the evil one. That the cares and the hardships of this world lead some to fall away. Or the desires of the world choke out the word so that it does not bear fruit. And you know, as much as it is soul-gladdening to see someone profess faith in Christ, it is as equally discouraging when someone proclaims the good news 
They hear professions of faith and what appears to be the transformation of life only to find out that it wasn't true. That there wasn't really a dying to self and a living to God. It's heartbreaking. And what is worse is is when they continue to call themselves Christians and they try to distort and twist the gospel, maybe, maybe unintentionally, with their words or with their lives for their own gain. Whether it be for their own personal glory or just some sort of peace of mind. Just to assume that I'm okay. I want to maintain that I'm okay even though I'm rejecting the gospel. And friends, I have seen it all too many times, both here and abroad. The exceeding joy that comes with a true reception of the gospel and the deep, deep sadness that follows when you come to realize that they have not. And our passage this morning is going to reveal to us both. Both the the soul-exulting highs and the heartbreaking lows of gospel proclamation. And if we're going to be faithful with the gospel, we're going to see both. As the Word of God goes forth, and it will, it will be received with joy. The Holy Spirit will be given in power without partiality. Christ will triumph over sin and over death. He will break down and destroy social barriers. And yet, in the midst of it all, there will be false professions. False professions that may even lead to false doctrine tragically being proclaimed in word, thought, and deed. And so what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, is that the gospel will go forth with joy and in the power of the Holy Spirit, but not everyone will believe. The gospel will go forth with joy and in the power of the Holy Spirit, but not everyone will believe. And so with that, let's turn our hearts now to the text, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. It says, Now those Christians who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, Jesus 
had just commanded his disciples back in chapter 1, verse 8, which is the thesis verse of all of the book of Acts. You want to understand what the book of Acts is about? You've got to start right there, Acts 1.8. That the gospel has now spread in all of Jerusalem and Judea. And now what we're seeing transpire here before us in this story is that the gospel is now going forward. The church is beginning to bear witness in the power of the Holy Spirit to Samaria as the mission of Christ continues to increase to the very end of the earth. It's all happening. It's all going just according to plan. As the Word of God goes forth, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to see first of all from this text that the gospel will be received with joy. Now, this persecution that drove as many as 10,000, keep this in mind, 10,000 basically brand new Christians out We read about it in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It didn't destroy their faith. It didn't demolish them. It didn't destroy them. They weren't running and hiding. Instead, it emboldened their faith. In ripping them from their homes, from their jobs, from their family and friends, from their comforts, from everything that they had come to know and identify themselves by, these brand new believers were now able to see the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ like never before. All the more clearly. And in a deep dependence and unwavering hope, they continued to proclaim the gospel with joy. And friends, keep this in mind. It wasn't the professionals that were doing this. It wasn't the apostles. Because we learned in chapter 8 verse 1 that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so these who were scattered were not the apostles. They were not the professionals. They were everyday folks just like you and me. A lot of them brand new Christians, walked with Christ a lot less time than you have. And yet here they go. They're spread out because of this persecution. They had to leave everything they know. They're they're being distributed among new cultures and new cities and new peoples. They're having to start all over again. But do you see them bemoaning their situation? Do you see them kind of living in hopelessness and despair? What are we going to do now? Do you see them in hiding? No. Instead, you see that as they go, they proclaim. Verse 4 says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, when you hear that word preaching, don't don't get kind of caught up and think, okay, that's that's what Chet does. Chet Chet is preaching, and so what they did is they they just kind of went and they got they took their pulpits with them and they went out and they set it up somewhere and started preaching the way Chet does. No, that word is evangelize. It's proclaim the good news of the word. They were heralding the gospel of of Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. So think evangelism, not not preaching. And this is important for us to consider. This context is really key for us to get. You see, God does not just sow the seed of the Word. God sows sowers. He sends people out to take the Word of God. Now, sometimes God does that through the missionary impulse of the church. That people, when they find their joy and their hope in Christ, they long to see those who do not know Christ come to know Him, and so they go. They're sent out. We're going to read about that in Acts chapter 13. But sometimes, God sows in a different way. He uses persecution to distribute sowers to sow the seed out there among the soil. And that's what He's doing right here. Now notice that they're not consumed by fear or bitterness. They continue to proclaim the Word of God. And you've got to ask yourself, okay, now how could this happen? I mean, think about it. These are fairly young Christians. They're not well trained. They don't have MDivs. They don't have PhDs. They've been scattered to the uttermost because of persecution, and yet they continue to proclaim Christ. Now how does this happen unless their hearts have been changed? Unless this is the work of God. Unless Christ was their true joy and their true hope. 
Friends, you have to understand that the impulse that drove these people, even as they're being scattered from their homes, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ was a God-given supernatural joy in Jesus that they were able to take that out even in the face of persecution. And it's into this, this story of the unfolding mission of God in Christ that Philip shows up doing the very same thing, picking up right where Stephen had left off. Now we were first introduced to Philip and Stephen back in chapter 6 as these Hellenist Jews, these Greek-speaking, Greek-acculturated Jews who were of good repute. They were full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they were appointed by the apostles and by the entire congregation there in Jerusalem to attend to the task of making sure that these Greek-speaking Jewish widows were not neglected in the daily distribution. And from there, the story turned to Stephen and his martyrdom. And in Stephen, we learned about what it truly means to bear witness to Christ. As Stephen lived for Christ, he spoke for Christ, and he was even willing to die for Christ. As he faithfully proclaimed the gospel to the very council that had condemned Jesus, a mob rose, they dragged him outside of the city and stoned him to death. And it was this event, the martyrdom of Stephen, that led to this citywide persecution that we're reading about here, that drove Philip from his home. And so along with those thousands and thousands and thousands of brand new Christians, Philip leaves Jerusalem and he makes his way to the city of Samaria. Now we don't know which city it is. More than likely it was the capital or a popular city like Shechem. But nevertheless, it doesn't really matter. We see him going and he's proclaiming the gospel as he goes. I want you to think about that as well. I mean, Philip's friend and ministry partner has just died. He's just died for proclaiming Christ. And now Philip finds himself on the run because of the death of his friend. Now, who in their right mind goes about doing the very same thing that got your buddy killed, and now you're doing it again? I mean, you got to be thinking to yourself, okay, this guy... Philip, he's either got a death wish, he's clinically insane, or he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That drives him out of love and in his joy for Christ to go and proclaim Christ even at risk of his life. This is a God-given supernatural joy that we see at work here that led him to sow the seed, to continue to bear witness to Christ even in the face of hostility. And so friends, whether it be Philip or the rest of these thousands of unnamed Christians who were scattered throughout by persecution, yet proclaiming the name of Christ, it was their joy, it was their love for the good news of Jesus Christ that fueled their evangelism and missions. You've got to get this. It was for joy. It wasn't training or tactics. It wasn't academic degrees or advanced courses in discipleship that enabled them to proclaim Christ even in the face of hardship. It was their joy in and their love for Christ. They didn't have to be told to proclaim the good news. They went out and proclaimed the good news even in the face of hardship because they delighted in the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't have to be told how. They didn't have to plan special events. They simply shared what they loved. Friends, we talk about what we love. Go ask your kids, what do they love? You know, go ask the kids down, down the hall, what do you love? And they will go on and on about who knows what. But they will be super excited about it. We find joy in what we love. And where there is little or no love for or joy in Christ, we won't talk about it. 
But the supernatural joy that we see in this passage is not only present in Philip, because God was at work in the lives of these hearers. In verse 6, we see that the crowd is with one accord. They are of one mind, one purpose, one impulse about Jesus. That's the work of God, right? They paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, they weren't all joyful and excited just because they can now walk or just because they don't have demons anymore. I mean, that was part of it, but that was not the main reason. We get so caught up in this fanciful that we miss what really matters, what really is going on. You see, those signs and wonders is just like what we see in the ministry of Jesus or the ministry of the apostles or even the ministry of Stephen. That God provided signs and wonders in order to verify, in order to authenticate the truth of the gospel. So we, don't, we shouldn't read this and think, oh, this is the, the way the church ought to, to go. This ought to be a normal practice in the life of the church where, where demons are constantly being exercised and, and the lame and are being healed and, and people with sicknesses and blind are just all kind of like restored and, and all of that, dead or raised to life, which you don't see that happening today anyway in these churches that profess it. But that's not what it's meant to tell us. This is not a normal experience for the life of the church Because if you look at when this happens, the only other people that Acts even tells us that God used to perform signs and wonders other than Peter and and the eleven, Stephen, Philip, were Paul and Barnabas. That's it. It doesn't say that the church was doing it, just those specific guys. And God was using them for a purpose. You see, what's happening throughout the Gospels and in Acts is that as the gospel goes forward. So Jesus is taking the gospel to the Jews, primarily to the Jews. Now, he's opening the door to the Samaritans and the Gentiles, but he's primarily going to the Jews. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and it is accompanied by signs and wonders, right? Jesus dies. He, he rises again. He is, ascends into heaven. The apostles continue on the ministry, and where do they go? They go first to the Jews, Right, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ while accompanied by signs and wonders. Okay, then you've got Stephen, and Stephen is a Hellenized Jew. He's a Greek-speaking Jew, and he's going to Greek-speaking Jews. This is one step removed away, and he's preaching Christ, and it's accompanied by signs and wonders. Now you have in this passage Philip. Philip is taking it one step further because he's not just going to Greek-speaking Jews. He's now going to Samaritans. And he's preaching, as it says in verse 12, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ while accompanied by signs and wonders. And the only other two people that you have mentioned in the book of Acts who performed signs and wonders were Paul and Barnabas. And who do they go to? They go to the Gentiles, to the very end of the earth in fulfillment of Acts 1.8, preaching Christ while accompanied by signs and wonders. You see, the whole purpose of talking about signs and wonders was to show us, to verify that God was faithful in in fulfilling all of His promises and the promise that He laid out there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is fulfilled by the time we reach Acts 28, as Paul finds himself in Rome. It says, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's completed by Acts 28. There's still more to do, but the promise has been fulfilled. Now, the result of Philip's testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ and of God's testimony to its truthfulness that is shown through these signs and wonders was joy. Look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Yes, they were joyful because 
demons were being cast out and lame were walking again, but they were ultimately joyful because verse 12 tells us that they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. You see, they saw the coming of the glory of the kingdom of God. They saw the goodness and the necessity of our Lord Jesus Christ's death for sin, His resurrection to new life, His exaltation for our adoration of Him. And they received it with joy by submitting themselves to baptism as an expression of their union that they now have with Him by faith in Christ because they have now died to sin and live to God. Joy. It was like Catherine's baptism last week or Clint's the month before. These were joyful expressions of their love for and their faith in Jesus Christ. And even Simon the magician gets caught up in it. We see in verse 13 that even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, that is, he attached himself to Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. For the moment, he was caught up in it all. Why was he caught up in it? Well, he was amazed by the signs and wonders that he saw, but ultimately, he was caught up in it all because there was much joy in that city. Now here's how all this ties together. You see, our joy in Christ leads to their joy in Christ, which leads to our joy collectively and mutually in Christ. The reason why there was much joy in that city was not just because those who did not know Christ now know Christ and there's joy, but there was joy because Christians have come together. Those who both shared and those who've received are now joyful because of who they are in Christ. One of the basic premises of the Christian life is that the joy, which is our Christian duty to pursue, does not reach its climax in our private communion with God, but rather it reaches its fullest extent of joy only when it is compounded by the joy of seeing others share in it with us. It's not meant for just you and you alone. It's meant for us. It's meant for them. It's meant for we So evangelism and missions then, even in the face of hardship, is not simply a duty or an obligation. They are among the different ways that God uses us along with the Word and Spirit to transform unbelievers into people whose great delight in life is to know and to trust in Jesus. To find their hope in Him. And so under God, our goal in evangelism is to be His instruments in creating a new people who delight in God through Jesus Christ and who thus bring us great joy. Friends, do you get this? There is no escape from it. If if we, by God's grace, are successful in evangelism, we will be happier. We will be glad. Our joy in God will be increased because that person now finding his or her infinite and eternal welfare in the glory of Christ makes us happy. And that is why Kendall was sitting there on the edge of that pew beaming. Because his soul was glad. God is at work in us and in the new convert to make us gradually into the kind of people who love God more and who therefore will inevitably make each other glad in God. And so evangelism is not necessarily aimed at people we like. And this is going to come to bear in the next point in just a few minutes, right? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. But it's aimed to create a people that we like people that we admire for their love for God. 
evangelism is done in the hope of creating a new people whom it will be a pleasure for us to be with because they admire most what we admire most, which is God. And that makes us glad. Makes them glad. It makes us glad. We're all glad. And the result of that is much joy. Joy in the hearer and joy in the sharer. Which is why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy, your joy and our joy, may be complete. Friends, this has got to change the way we think about the privilege that we've been given in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that even if things are not perfect in your life, even if you find yourself scattered and on the run, the Lord has called each and every one of us to herald the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim that which we find our joy in. A joy that cannot be squashed, it cannot be quelched by anything that happens in our lives. Because it's secure in Christ. And our joy leads to their joy which leads to our joy in Him. And so as the Word of God goes forth, it will be shared mutually with joy. Because, but that's not all. Because second of all, as the Word of God goes forth, the Holy Spirit will be given impartially. Friends, this gospel that we share, this joy, this hope that we have, the the promise of the Holy Spirit who is given as a seal for each one of us is given to all without impartiality, without bias, without any resignation. There's no boundaries. There's no limit to it. So think about this. Who do you despise the most? What person or people groups or maybe subcultures most frustrate or annoy you? And don't think just in terms of race, but but what category of people concern you the most? It could be something silly, like friends don't let friends drive Fords. I, I don't know. What kind of people get under your skin? Where on, on bad days, you wish that God would just shut their mouths or strike them dead. Maybe, maybe you think about ISIS. Maybe you think about Ku Klux Klan. Maybe you think about particular presidential candidates and those who follow them. Maybe more seriously, someone or some group that you fear or has hurt you deeply. Well, for the Jews, that was the Samaritans. We can't even begin to describe or acknowledge the depth of animosity between these two groups. In the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were half-breeds and heretics. And that's big because the Jewish faith was all about the family of God and the worship of God. And in their minds, the Samaritans have utterly decimated, perverted, and destroyed both. And so, in their eyes... These people deserve no mercy. They are beyond the hope of God. This was like a thousand year Hatfield and McCoy thing that's going on here. And yet, God in His kindness sent Philip. Now, I just want you to marvel at the providence of God for just a moment. Because Philip was an outsider to the Jews. You see, Philip was a Hellenist, right? He was a a Greek-speaking, Greek-acculturated Jew. And God used persecution to drive this Jewish outsider to Samaria, to a bunch of half-breeds and heretics who were also Hellenized. Outsider to outsider, yet brought inside through Christ. Again, we see the wisdom of God in using Stephen's death, rising persecution, and this faithful outsider Philip to extend the mission of Christ to those whom the Jews hated the most. 
The gospel was going forward in Jerusalem and in all Judea and now to Samaria on its way to the end of the earth. And so in verse 14, we see that that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me that these Samaritans have now received the word of God? That they have now accepted Christ? The Christ that we believed and now we're being scattered and it's going to them? We've got to go check this out for ourselves. Okay, now ironically, and I love this, I love the irony of the Bible, Luke chapter 9, when the Samaritans in a village refused to receive Jesus, it was John alongside his brother James that asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to consume this Samaritan village. And here we see John going to Samaritan village, and he's about to call down fire from heaven to consume them, but in a very different way. Now what happened here in verses 15 through 17 is not a normal experience in the church. Verse 15 says that Peter and John, they came down and they prayed for believing Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not fallen, had had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, this is not normal in the life of the church. We don't take this to mean that there's some kind of second baptism in the Spirit, whether that be for infant baptizing uh, groups or, or Pentecostal groups as well. Right? So there's two different groups that hold to this, this idea of a second baptism. It, those, for example, those among the, the infant baptizing group. Those would be the Catholic Church, some, some Anglicans and other infant baptizers as well who would say that, that when a baby is baptized, the Holy Spirit does do a, a saving work in them, but yet they have not received the Holy Spirit until their faith becomes their own. And so there's sort of two stages to the process there. And that's different than when some Pentecostal churches believe that when a person hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and they respond in faith, they receive the Holy Spirit, but then they argue that what's happening here in the text is what's called a second baptism in the Spirit and that this ought to be a normal, regular practice in the church that comes through the laying on of hands and is made evident by things like prophecy or the speaking in tongues. And this this second baptism, they would say, is normative. It's for the church today. And that some would even say that it's necessary, at least for maturity in Christ. But what we have here is not a normal process for the life of the church. Okay, Unique things are happening in Acts. Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. We've got to keep this in mind because, because a new age has dawned. In the coming of Christ. And we've got to get that. The normal process is that the Word and Spirit are at work in the hearts and minds of unbelievers so that they can repent of their sin and believe in Christ and they receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit from that point on forevermore. And it, yeah, at times the Spirit fills us, but fills us for the proclamation of the gospel, not not a second baptism in the Spirit that is accompanied by signs and wonders. And so, if this is not normal, if what we just read is not normal, then why did it happen this way? It's a legitimate question, right? Well, again, it happened according to the unfolding mission of God. You see, Jesus had promised His apostles back in Mark or, sorry, Mark, Matthew chapter 16, that they would be given the keys to the kingdom of God. And what he means by that is that you, the apostles, the, the, the guys who start the church, you are going to be responsible for determining who is in the kingdom of God and who is not in the kingdom of God. Okay? So think about the church like this. Think of it like an embassy. Right? When you find yourself in a different country, Say you're in India or you're in Pakistan or wherever you happen to be, right? You're a foreigner in that country. If there's an issue about your identification, you have to go to the embassy and the embassy verifies whether or not you are a citizen. 
okay? So you go to that embassy, and the embassy the officials there, think of these, the, these apostles as those officials, they, they say, yep, okay, he's good, he's, he's a member, he's a citizen of the kingdom of God here on earth, this is the embassy that is of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, but that one over there is not, and that's what they would do. Now, the Holy Spirit is the seal, the stamp of approval that says, yep, this one absolutely is in the kingdom versus not. The passport is baptism, right? Think of it that way. The church is the embassy. And these leaders, these, in this case the apostles, were official ambassadors with the kingdom of God in order to verify, in order to authenticate, in order to confirm that these Samaritans are fully incorporated into the church of Christ. That is why it was necessary for them to come down. Now, think about this. If, if Peter and John had never come down from Jerusalem to Samaria, what would happen? The church would have immediately been divided. Divided along these racial lines. You would have the Samaritan church over here, and you would have the Jewish church over here. Each a little suspect of the other. Right? Because there's no, there's no proof, there's no verification, there's no sort of confirmation that, that these are truly believers. And so that hatred and animosity, the hostility, the distrust that we have seen between these two groups would have continued on indefinitely and the church from its very beginnings would have been severed. The body of Christ would have been divided. But when Peter and John went down and they heard their professions of faith, when they laid their hands on them and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, no one could question that they were equally a part of Christ's church, fully incorporated members into Christ's body, just like the Jews. There's no longer a distinction because they have received the same Holy Spirit that we have. And quite honestly, this... this wouldn't have been strange to them because that's exactly what happened to the apostles. I mean, think about it. They had followed Christ for three years. They saw him perform signs and wonders. They were there when he died, when he rose again. They saw him on many occasions after his resurrection. They were there when he ascended into heaven. And what did he say to him as he go, hey, you go pray, right, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It hadn't happened yet. And so it's going to happen. And so for 10 days, they devoted themselves to praying. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 1 until finally it happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so this whole thing wouldn't have been strange to the apostles at all. Or when you think about Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, in that situation, here's Cornelius, he's a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer, he loves the Lord, he's kind of waiting eagerly, God gives him a vision to come and ask Peter to come and share with his family. So he gathers everybody up, and they're just kind of sitting on the edge of their seat, just kind of waiting for that last little bit to, to hear the gospel. And then, boom, they believe. They receive the Holy Spirit. And that happened before anybody was baptized or anybody laid hands on anyone else. And so this is, this is not really strange to them. But whether it be for the Jews, the Gentiles, or for these Samaritans, the apostles, some contingency of the apostles were present when they received the Holy Spirit in order to confirm that they were indeed incorporated into the church. True believers with all of the joys and all of the privileges that the Jewish believers experienced. And that responsibility of the keys of the kingdom was give, that was first given to the apostles, was then passed on to the church. Otherwise, we would have had to ask Peter and John to come and join us and to verify Catherine's testimony and anybody else that was saved out of this body. And so that's what it's about. That's why it happened this way, to be able to authenticate, to be able to verify. There's no separation between Jew and Samaritan here. We're all one in Christ. One spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of overall, just like we read about in Ephesians chapter 4. But 
God didn't just orchestrate this whole event where Peter and John had to come down and lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit for the sake of the Samaritans only. He did it for the sake of the apostles. He did it for the mission of the church. You see, sometimes we as believers, we're a little slow on the uptake. Maybe if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you probably notice this in us, that there are plenty of times where you, you kind of hear something that comes from the Word of God and you look at Christians and, and they don't seem to be getting it, right? That's because we're slow on the uptake. We come and buy it naturally, right? The, the nice thing is we're all in it together, okay? So that's not an excuse. It's just a reality. And we see it right here in, in the apostles. The apostles were in Jerusalem, right? And though they were sacrificing greatly to continue to minister in Jerusalem, what they're doing here is they're still holding on to their Jewish culture. They're still holding on to their ethnic preferences, to their pre-Christ worldview. You see, in their minds, Jerusalem was Zion. This is the city of God. And so they thought they needed to stay there because you don't give up the capital to the kingdom. you got to stay there and fight for it, right? And they were thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe what Jesus meant when he said that we're to be witnesses to all these other people to the ends of the earth, that they're going to continue to come to us. Well, that's what Israel thought about in the Old Testament, and it didn't work. And we also see the same thing happen in Acts chapter 10, where you've got Peter, and he's in Joppa. He goes up onto the roof and prays. He receives a vision from Christ, right, where, where all of these unclean animals are presented to him. And, and Jesus says, here, take and eat. And he says, hey, I've never done that before. Can't do that. And Jesus says, hey, what I call clean, you don't call unclean. And this didn't happen just once, but three times. Because, again, Peter's a little slow on the uptake, right? And so then, poof, like the, the, you know, it goes back up into heaven. And as soon as that happens, there's a knock on the door. And you got Cornelius' friends because Cornelius had also received a vision to go and get this guy named Peter in Joppa in the home of Simon the Tanner, bring him to, to bring him to you so that you can hear this message that you need to hear. And so it's only after the fact in Acts chapter 11, after the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his family members, that, that Peter finally got it. It's like, oh wait, Jesus wasn't actually talking about eating food. He was talking about the Gentiles. You see, they, they were blinded by their expectations. They were blinded by their pre-Christ worldview. They were blinded by everything that they had spent their life coming to know, and they haven't, Christ hasn't reshaped and redefined it all yet. But Jesus said to them, listen, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said to them in Matthew 28, you will go and you will make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. And so what that means is that your mission is not just Jerusalem, but to the very end of the earth, to all of the nations and all of the races and all of the people groups and all of the subcultures that live there. Everyone. This is not about you. It's not about your preferences or your experiences or your comfort level. It is about the glory of Christ and the vision that God gave His people in revelation of that future people of God that is multinational, multi-tribe, multi-tongue, multi-ethnic, multi-background people who are now one. One people, one body, one culture in Christ. They didn't get it and they needed to see it. I read a blog article this week that talked about how if uh, you don't like diversity, then you're going to hate heaven. Because heaven is going to be the most diverse place that you can imagine. And because that is the case, then get me here. Listen to me. Come on, look at me, please. Look at me. There is no room for bigotry in the church. 
There's no room for partiality. There's no room for ethnic divide. I get how, how language can separate us because if we can't communicate the gospel, which is a word message, we got a problem. But every other division is removed because that's the direction that we're heading. As we can't prefer people that are just like us and think that we're somehow being faithful to Christ if we're only taking the gospel and people look just like me. It goes to all. The family of God will be as multicolored as Joseph's robe. And it has profound impact on the mission of the apostles. Because if you look down at verse 25, and when they had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord, so they stayed there and they preached Christ, they spoke the word of the Lord, they still returned to Jerusalem. We can only assume that that's because where the Lord wanted them. But this time they are preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. John, who once desired to pronounce judgment upon Samaritan villages, was now preaching Christ to those whom he once wanted to condemn. So friends, who, who are your most hated, most feared, most despised, most unworthy, those people that you consider to be most beyond the hope of the gospel? Do they wear ties or tattoos, pleats or piercings? Do they have white hair, blue hair, green hair, purple? Are they light-skinned or dark-skinned? Are they young? Are they old? Are they male? Are they female? Are they rich? Are they poor? Are they in sickness or are they in health? Because they are not beyond the mercy of God. And neither are you. As the gospel goes forth, we see that the Holy Spirit is given impartially because there is not one type of person that God cannot save, that God cannot change. And as the gospel goes forth, the Holy Spirit is given impartially to remind us that there is no room for animosity in the kingdom of God, that there's no room for bigotry or preference only love that compels us to mission to the least of these and to the ends of the earth. You may not understand their ways. You may not under, you speak their language. You might not know their culture, but I can assure you of this. They can sing their hearts out in love for Jesus just as well as you can, and they were meant to because they have received the same word and the same spirit that you and I have. We, who were first to hope in Christ, we simply have the pleasure of taking Him to them. And so as the Word of God goes forth, the Gospel will be received with joy, the Holy Spirit will be given impartially, and yet third, we see that there will be false professions. Now guys, I battled with this all this week, how to handle Simon the magician. There's just so much stuff there, and so I decided to change the way I'm going to treat this text at 8 o'clock this morning. And so I'm just going to give you sort of an overview of Simon, and then we're going to look at him in more detail next time, because Simon's issue is that he... He has a false understanding of the gospel, but when you look at his false understanding of the gospel, I promise you, you will see more of you in this than you could imagine. And so I want to take time to look at it. Christ told us in, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, that the enemy will sow weeds among the wheat. That means that there will be false professions and there will be false teachers. And it doesn't matter how faithful you are to sow the seed, to tend the soil, to water the crop, 
to prune, to cultivate, to harvest. This will be done. And we won't know until it's too late. And the reality is it's heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. I want to I look at Simon in greater detail next time, but for now, I, I, I just... I just want us to to know for certain that this is not a true profession, and here's how we know that it's not a true profession of faith. First of all, we see throughout Simon's account here that he has a longing for greatness. We think about who he is, how he's described. He thought that he was somebody great, and he wasn't the only one because all of the people there in Samaria, the crowd was saying, you know, look at this guy. This guy is the power of God who is called great. They thought he was somebody special, somebody significant. And so when Simon looked at this power that he sees being displayed in Philip's ministry or in the apostles' ministry, he's looking at the power. He's looking at the greatness. And he thinks, you know what? If I receive that, if I just take that onto myself, then I will be greater. I will be better. And that's why he's willing to pay them for this power. Again, if you notice that even the fact that after it says that he believed and was baptized, he's clinging to Philip. He's running around just like constantly, like at his heels constantly because he wants to be near that one because he now thinks that Philip is greater than him and he wants to get in close. And it says the object of his faith was that he was amazed by the signs and wonders. Simon had a magical view of the gospel. He thought that if we could just add, if I could just add Jesus onto my life, it's just like another spell book. Just another book of incantations that I can purchase to make me more powerful. And I'll give anything I can to do that. And I'll just add Jesus onto my life. But his worldview didn't change. He still had a a magical outlook on life. And guys, we do the same thing. Come to Jesus because we think that Jesus will make our lives better, that you will be happier, that you will be more content with yourself, that Jesus will help you improve your marriage or make sure that your kids are moral or, you know, just any number of ways that things will go better in this life if you just accept Jesus now. And it's peddled. Jesus is peddled like some commodity to be added on to make your life easier. But his true nature is revealed when he asks to buy the Holy Spirit. The true nature of his heart is shown. And Peter responds by rebuking him. By saying, listen, you have no no part in this. You have no business in this whatsoever. You, You don't get it. Your heart is still wicked. The intentions of your heart are what condemn you. You are in the gall of bitterness. You are in the bond of iniquity. And Simon is not repentant. Sure, he kind of gives up that lip service there in verse 24. Hey, you know, Peter, pray for me that that none of this bad stuff will happen to me. And how often do we treat the Christian faith like that? Right? I'm not going to pray to God. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to fall on my face and say, have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner. Instead, I'm going to go to the pastor and I'm going to say, hey, hey, will you pray for me so that you, know, you can work your magic mojo there and then suddenly all of this stuff will work out for me or at least I won't get what I deserve? But church history would add that Simon, the magician, was the very first heretic to come out of the Christian faith. That he was the father of what became known as Gnosticism. And that he not only led himself to hell, but took many others with him. A worldview that is still alive and well today. There's so many stories I could tell about this, both here And overseas, my time in India, it's gut-wrenching. 
Because when you look at Simon, this is the guy you want to see converted, right? I mean, the guy that was practicing dark magic is suddenly delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? And you look at that and you're just like, yes, that is what I want. That's what we hope to see. And you can imagine the rejoicing in their hearts when here's Simon that's now following the heels of Philip and it looks like it's all good, only to find out that it's not. And you grieve deeply. But it's a reality. It's part of the gospel ministry. That as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be great rejoicing both in the sharer and the hearer. The Holy Spirit will be given impartially in ways that we can't even comprehend. And yet there will be false professions. There have been among this body. There will be more. And there's nothing that you can do other than weep. Weep and pray. You want to pray for true conversions, not just for exuberant professions of faith. Guys, i got to be honest with you. Maybe it's cynicism working in. I, I hope not. But when you come and you tell me, you show up here the first time and I meet you and I shake your hand and you tell me you're a believer in Christ... I don't trust you. And it's not because I, I think there's something wrong with you, but it's just I, I know what that comes to mean in this, this day and age that, that means so many things. It's not because I don't love you or that I don't have hope, but I'm a little suspicious, a little slow in the uptake. We're not looking for exuberant professions. We're looking for true conversions. But we need to know this. That when these false professions happen, it's not a deficiency in the seed and it's not a deficiency in the sower. This has been my battle here. Because I look at like, God, what else can I do? I bring them the word. I proclaim it faithfully. I do what I can. And yet, I get hit, blindsided like a train wreck to my soul when, when these things happen, and I can't change it. This passage reminds me of the fact that there's not a deficiency in what we're doing. There's not, there's not a weakness or an inability or, or lack of power in the gospel to save. It's not that I'm not being faithful with it. We're not being faithful with it when somebody turns away from it. But that it was just as Jesus said, that there will be weeds sown among the wheat. And we've got to trust that he knows what he's doing. Even when we look at Simon, and you're like, Gnosticism. How could this be? But friends, don't, don't let it squash your joy in proclamation. Because the Word will accomplish all of its purposes. The Word of God will go forth People will receive it with joy. The Holy Spirit will be given impartially. And there will be false professions. But take hope. Because the gospel will not fail. Acts reminds us that it's true. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the very end of the earth. And so let's pray that that would be true for us, that we would not waver in unbelief or lack of hope, but that we would rest sure in the power of the gospel to save, to accomplish all its purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for this reminder of the missionary impulse of the gospel and how there is nothing that can thwart it. Not persecution, not hostility, not social barriers that we erect between each other in our sin, and not even false gospels, not even cults, not even false worldviews can keep your word from accomplishing all of its purposes. Oh God, I pray that that truth would rejoice our hearts. That we would be glad in Christ. That He would be our hope and our treasure. That we would see Him as beautiful. And out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths would speak praise would herald the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of others and our joy mutually in Him. God, we thank You that that You don't give us the power. We we don't lay our hands and impart the Holy Spirit to anyone. The, The Holy Spirit blows where He wills, but when He moves in power, there is nothing that can thwart it. That it brings, he brings gladness to us. He brings life transforming power that changes people into pagan, from pagan worshipers, idol worshipers, those who act and live as enemies of you into your children. And so, God, I pray that that gives us strength as we proclaim the truth, knowing that not everyone will believe. But that in love, we would continue to hold out the promise of life. Simon wasn't struck dead, but instead Peter rebuked him and said, repent and pray. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be our message as well. For the glory of Christ and for our joy in Him, may it be so. Amen.